Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you here and thank you for this opportunity of being in your presence. We know that heaven is smiling upon us as the Bibles are opened and as we attempt to learn from it now. Help us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I do greet every one of you here in church today. Uh, I'm Richard Bewes from down south, from London. That's where my home is, though I was born in East Africa, in Kenya, as the child of missionaries. And we've had a wonderful time at Windmill House just uh, in the last couple of days, with I don't know how many, but plenty of the fellowship were there. So I greet you again, who are with us uh, on the last two days. And now here we are in church, we're looking forward to this so much as we turn to the Bible. It was actually your minister, David Robertson, who invited me all months ago whether I would come and share in the time together at Windmill House and then stay on to Sunday. And I got to know him a little bit earlier on when he came down to preach for us down in the south uh, on-screen uh, on uh, sermons that have ended up on our website and he gave us six sermons from Ecclesiastes. Three of them have been edited and are now on the website. There's about 25 of us preachers. We all have a little go. And if you want to hear your minister, who I know is gravely ill in hospital at the moment, there's much prayer going on for him right now. If you want to see those sermons of his, three of them at least, you, all you get onto is the website, which is, what is it? www. The sermon. That's just one word. The sermon, co.uk. That's it. And I'm staying at the moment with Brown and Cassie Parr, and I'm very grateful for their great hospitality. Hey, and I love your Scottish accents. I'm sorry I've come with my accent. It's not, it's not like yours. Uh, but uh, you, I, I, I know that you can accommodate me. Uh, at least there's no interpretation. I've preached in Romania and in Russia and in Africa and in Germany and one or two places where you had to have an interpreter. And that's always hard, harder work. Uh, it also shortens your sermon by half. Uh, but uh, not here. Actually, there was an Anglican clergyman preaching by interpretation in India once. And he started rather disastrously, this Anglican clergyman. He began, well, his opening sentence was, the beatific familiarity of this chapter, traditional in quinquagesima, must not cause us to neglect its profundity. It was translated as follows. So far the speaker has not said anything worth remembering. <laughs> when he does, I'll let you know. <laughs> well, we hope that this will be worthwhile and, and worth remembering as we come to the Bible. Certainly this chapter we're going to look at, Act 17 is definitely worth remembering. It's one of my best chapters in the Bible. And I'll just read a little bit, shall I? Uh, I don't know how your church Bibles go, what page it is, but here we are. Acts chapter 17 in the New Testament. And I'm going to start at verse 16, I think. Paul is in Athens, the apostle. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. 
a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Well, the overall theme that your elders gave me to take for this weekend of teaching was the church. I call it the model church. That's my theme, really. And we took as our first three topics at Windmill House its heavenly citizenship, then the church's lifestyle revolution, and then the church's public witness. So now on this Sunday morning, let's take this theme of the model church, but on this occasion, its enduring story. And that's Acts 17 here. So we turn to the Acts of the Apostles, and let's focus on verse 19, words addressed to the Apostle Paul by those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers of Athens on his arrival in the city. And they ask him, may we know what this new teaching is? Yes, it hadn't taken the apostles long to announce themselves in Athens. Well, in London, not all that long ago, an African church minister from Nigeria arrived with his wife on their first ever visit outside their own country. And there at Heathrow Airport, they were not quite sure on arrival what to do when they were faced by the red and green channels of the customs through which they had to go. So they said, well, we'll go through that red one. Right, said the customs officer, what have you got to declare? And the African didn't know what he was talking about. So he pulled out his Bible and said, we declare to you Jesus Christ and him crucified and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Well, thankfully, they didn't pull him in. He got away with it all right. But that's the style. No apology. Darkest Britain, they were there. Back in the act, it had been Paul and Silas coming into Europe for the first time. First stop, Philippi, where they preached, that's chapter 16 here, formed a church, were beaten, clapped into jail, an earthquake took place, a whole mass of things happened after that. They were finally ordered out, leaving really just two house groups, well, house, house, inhabited houses, uh, Christian households, as a witness. That of Lydia, a businesswoman, and that of the town jailer. Next, it was Thessalonica, chapter 17, and in verse 5 there, Europe's first house group is formed at the house of a character called Jason. Oh, there was going to be trouble. There usually is when the gospel first comes to an alien area. And uh, as we said at our house party a day or two ago, when you read the book of Acts, it wasn't really the apostolic miracles that so upset the authorities. It was the preaching that rattled them. These newcomers were undermining the empire and Caesar with their talk of another king, Jesus. They were using offensive, politically incorrect language. So the gospel, dear friends, 
had a toehold in only just one household, that of Jason, verse 5. But, verses 5 to 9, such is the power of the gospel, that this one house group was enough to cause a riot across the whole city of Thessalonica. These men, the shout went up, who have turned the world upside down, only one house group, such is the power of the gospel. Here in Acts was darkest Europe, with its ideologies, its strange practices and idolatries, fused together into a towering world religion that dominated all of Europe. And Paul and his few friends were bold enough to think that that whole edifice could be overturned and replaced eventually. Riots break out. Paul has to leave. A little later we find him on this place, Mars Hill in Athens, there in verse 22, where he begins to preach. Right behind Paul was the towering edifice of the Parthenon, dominating everything, that great temple, looking as beautiful and shining as though it had been carved out of marble only yesterday instead of 400 years earlier. So when Paul finished his sermon, later in verse 32 here, the clever heads begin to laugh. They might not have laughed so readily had they known that within a number of decades as they rolled by, the Parthenon itself would become a Christian church. And a church it remained for a thousand years. Now it's just a pile of rubble. But Christianity had the Parthenon longer than any other belief system. Not that the possession of a building is of any great consequence, ladies and gentlemen. Much more important is what is happening to the mindset of great numbers of people. And Thessalonica, earlier on, had been where East and West met. Cicero had boasted, it is placed in the bosom of our empire. So with its terrific harbour, its population of 200,000, its trade routes fanning out everywhere, Thessalonica was well placed to make Christianity with its message of another king international. The same was true when Paul reached Athens. And such a theme takes us straight into our first main observation. Here it is, the novelty of the Christian message. It's novelty. Jesus, the gospel, why in that massively pluralistic atmosphere closely resembling today's new age scene, those listeners hadn't a clue what Paul was on about. That didn't discourage him. And nor should we be discouraged when certain modern church leaders of our own time, rather glibly, I think, talk about today as a post-Christian era. No. It's more interesting, it's more exciting than that. In the West, we're fairly rapidly coming into what we may call, perhaps, a new pre-Christian era with all of the opportunities and challenges that gives us. The wheel has nearly gone full circle. I visit Leicester Square in London and I walk through and I feel I'm back in Athens again. All these different heathen altars around Athens, well, they're sort of replaced by a whole mass of New Age and just about every religion and oddball sect going. And to every generation, 
The gospel must come across always as new. It has to be explained and transmitted all over again with each fresh generation. We can take nothing for granted in the past. It only takes one generation and the whole thing can begin to slide. A friend of mine went into one of London's biggest stores in Oxford Street and visited the religious book section in this vast place. They saw tomes on yoga and Sufism and witchcraft and Buddhism and so on. He asked to see their stock of Bibles and was told, no, we don't stock Bibles here. That's darkest Oxford Street after one generation. The Bible apparently an unknown and unwanted thing. But that can be the same elsewhere. When I was rector at All Souls Church in Langham Place in London, we had a Chinese student walk in one day, and at the mention of Jesus, she frowned in mild puzzlement. She'd never heard of him. Maybe that's one first observation we should make from Acts 17, the novelty of the Christian message. And my goodness, if there's somebody here, and you're here quite early in your own exploration of Christianity. You're not quite sure what it's all about. Some of it will come across, I think, as quite, quite new. It takes a little while. You're in a safe place. No one will get at you. There's just a great atmosphere of prayer and fellowship and togetherness here. We go at our own pace. But you will find wonderful things coming as quite new into your understanding, and it will be great. The novelty of the Christian message. Here's a second theme, what I call the networking of the Christian message. If you look at verse 21 here, do you see it there? It says that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Athens, like any big city today, was a cosmopolitan capital where ideas and a multiplicity of differing belief systems were swirling around in an amazing ideological cake mix. And Paul seizes on the theme of the altar. There, verse 22, 23, the altar dedicated to, to what was called the unknown God. I suppose that was the idea of the Athenians. Let's put an altar up to the God we don't know just in case he takes vengeance on us for not having venerated him. So, an altar dedicated to the unknown God. That gives Paul his cue. He says, this unknown God, I am going to declare to you. And when I think of that, how it worked out. You know, that uh, preacher from America, the evangelist Billy Graham, Many years ago, he was preaching in Times Square in New York, in the open air, to 120,000 people. And he took that verse as his theme. I'm going to proclaim to you the unknown God. But Billy Graham, of course, he was not surrounded by altars there in Times Square. He was surrounded by advertisements for various cinema showings and films. So he took one after another of these films as his starting off point. One was Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. Well, that gave him a good starting point when he could talk about 
how that God has given us this way of life that he wants his followers to follow and how we failed. The Ten Commandments. The next film title he selected was The Walking Dead. They gave him a wonderful opportunity to talk about those. Yes, they're walking around in life, but spiritually, in their hearts, they're dead as far as God is concerned and Jesus Christ. That gave him a wonderful opportunity. The third film he selected was one called The Lonely Man. Then he selected Jesus Christ, who stands alone in history as the one who governs the universe and whom no one has ever matched and talked of him as the unique saviour of all humanity. And the last film he selected, the title was Love in the Afternoon. And that gave him an opportunity to talk about Calvary and the cross of Jesus Christ, who on that strange Good Friday afternoon had surrendered his life so that the world, so that you and I could be saved. What a wonderful imaginative way to do it, to take Acts 17 and to turn it round in that way. Well, here are Paul and his few friends setting up a network for missionary outreach. And that great Roman trunk road, they called it the Via Ignatia. It ran for 500 miles from the Adriatic in the west right through to the east to Constantinople. And in all, there were these many, many thousands of miles of Roman trunk road making access for the messengers of Jesus easy. Just as the common Greek language right across the whole of the Roman Empire at that time made communication of the gospel easy. No problem about interpretation at the border. No need for border controls, nothing like that. It was one great empire. That gave Christianity an amazing channel of communication. The networking was fantastic. As Augustine once said, one loving spirit sets another on fire. He said that 1,600 years ago. That was what was happening in the Roman Empire, gossiping as they went around all of Europe. It's up to every biblically-based church to harness today's network. Formed by the common English language that seems to straddle so much of the world, the comparative ease of travel from continent to continent, the availability of films, email, all of those things, the internet, but supremely, as has been the case across the centuries, the power of intercessory prayer. When we remember people around the world and they remember us and we exchange emails and we're able to remember what are the particular needs, that's the most effective network of all. I remember years ago having the great privilege of meeting that Romanian leader, Richard Wombrand, the Reverend Richard Wombrand, persecuted in solitary confinement for 14 years under the Ceausescu regime in Romania, he finally got to the West. And his challenging words to us remain with me today. If you are not praying for your martyred brothers and sisters around the world who are witnessing and suffering for their faith, I wonder who you are praying for. That stabbed us, many, many of us. Who are we praying for? There's a vast gospel network of mutual support and prayer in existence today. How far are we a part of it? How far are you a part of it? How far is your bedroom a part of it? So maybe a bomb outrage takes place in 
Beirut or in Sudan or in Baghdad? Do we know some of the churches or some of the pastors there, some of the Christian representatives there, that we can bring to the Lord, even just one per country? We can work at that. I was overwhelmed when an overseas pastor in Africa once told me, I pray for you on the 19th day of every month. I thought, what? He prays for me. It's an unseen, largely secret networking, this, powered by the belief that prayer leaps across oceans, crosses barbed wire, penetrates prison walls. Prayer is God's appointed way by which a church or an individual Christian cooperates with his determined will. We pray, he works. That's the way it's done. So we work at that too. The joint resolve can be our church could touch the world. That was what we were saying to each other at Windmill House in the last two days. Our church could touch the world. And on the personal level, hey, your bedroom can touch the world. So we thought a little of the novelty of the Christian message. When it's faithfully communicated, it always comes across as brand new. And then there's the networking of the Christian message. It's a whole world that we have in view. And then thirdly, well, there's what I call the necessity of the Christian message. Does that sound a bit obvious, to put it like that? The necessity? Of course it's obvious. And yet, we need to take it in again and again. So those altars in Athens and that unknown God and then the feeling of Paul the Apostle, we've got to take this on. We've got to explain to these people this unknown God. It might have cost him a lot. They would laugh at him. They would leave him alone. Yet there were still those who that very day would make their response to the preaching of Paul the Apostle. In our passage of Acts 17, Paul puts the case clearly in verse 29 onwards. Therefore, he said, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's just unpopular, really. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Notice the universality of that language. All people everywhere, the whole world judged by the one appointed man who has been raised from the dead. This man, he's at the center of it all. That's what Paul is preaching, Jesus. Sometimes people say to me, I wonder if they said it to you, I can't see where Jesus fits in. They'll say, God, I can understand about God, but I can't see where Jesus fits in. Well, one wonderful answer was given 1,600 years ago by a mighty theologian, Athanasius, Egyptian-born and Greek-trained. He once said, the only system of thought into which Jesus Christ will fit is the one in which he is the starting point. So you go back, you see, to the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. Well, the Word is another name for Jesus. The Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Start with Jesus in our exploration of how to get to God, and we get answers. If we don't start with Jesus, we're like the man who gets up in the morning and puts on his shirt, beginning to do out the buttons, beginning with the wrong button. You ever done that? Or with your blouse? I've done that. Starting with the wrong button, and you think, oh, maybe if I just go on, it'll, it'll fit, it'll work. No, it'll never fit. It'll never work. You've got to get it right. Same with the, these spiritual matters. If you don't start with Jesus, existence and your existence and the world and its meaning will never quite make sense. There'll always be a puzzle. What is this whole thing about? How is it going to end? Have Jesus at the start and the whole thing makes sense. That is my testimony and the testimony of millions of people. So when we think of this, the necessity of the Christian message, we start with Jesus. It was this realization that awoke a man called Jerome years ago. Same century, 400 and something AD. He was the top scholar in the whole of Europe. He loved the classics. He loved doing Cicero. This was Jerome. Everybody revered him as a mighty scholar. He was not a believer in Christ. And this is his story. This is part of history. One night he dreamt that he had died and arrived at the gates of heaven. And the gatekeeper met him and said to him, Who are you? And Jeremiah replied, Christianus sum. He was speaking in the language of that time, which was Latin. I'm a Christian. No, said the gatekeeper, you're not a Christian. You see, he said, we measure people what they were when they were down there on earth, what they were most when they were there on earth. And there, down on earth, you were most of all a classical scholar. Cicero was your great hero. We judge you, therefore, here, not to be a Christian, but a Ciceronian. Sorry, can't come in. And Jeremiah woke with a start and thought, ah, I'll be a Christian. I'll follow this Jesus. And he did. Then he applied all his great learning to translating the Bible from beginning to end the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the Greek of the New Testament, and out came what was, came to be known as the Vulgate version of the Bible. It lasted Europe 1,000 years. That's Jerome, woken up to this necessity of having Christ at the center. Why this necessity of the Christian message? What was it that drove our evangelical forebears out to China and Africa and India, South America, now that's driving China out to us. That's the amazing thing. The church in China today is uncontainable. And it's spreading in the most amazing way. They're an example to us, as are the African Christians. It has to be more than just a desire to do good. You know, to bring education or medicine or better living standards to a community. No, it has to be more than that. More even than the winning of precious souls from judgment. Ultimately, what drove dedicated men and women, and in modern times, the women often more than the men, into the mission field? 
was the desire for the glory of God. That's the top motive, the desire for his glory. And for Jesus Christ to be followed and loved and obeyed and worshipped all around the world, for his praises to be sung, even as they are in heaven. We can thank God that to that end, there are now national evangelists and spirit-filled leaders locally in many places, indeed in numbers of countries, where foreign missionaries are now banned. I think of one man, K.P. Johannan, I've met, I've met him, he's one of our preachers on this website, uh, the film uh, gospel message website of ours. He and his fellow evangelists are planting in Asia an average of 17 new churches every day. Prayer and money, he says, we can do with that, but let us, do, we'll get on with the job, we'll do it. Support us with your prayers, he says. Well, I think of a dear man, excuse these stories, I think of a dear man in the Congo, he's a good friend, Babaka is his name. He's a pastor. If you met him, you'd think, oh, he's just a, you know, he could be a, a bank manager, he could be a bank official serving you at the counter. But he is, in fact, a pastor. And he noticed in his part of the Congo that there was a radio station nearby with no Christian content. So one day he said to the managers, look, I can fill an hour for you if you like. Whatever time you like, I'll give you an hour. And they said, very well, you can. We'll give you five o'clock in the morning. All right, he said, I'll take it. That meant he had to get up at four. But he prepared his message day by day, every day, he had an hour at five o'clock. And then he'd, no music, no interviews, nothing like that, just preaching, preaching, preaching for an hour every day, babaka. Well, after several months, he thought, I wonder if anybody is listening out there. So he put out a message one day and said, listen, if you're out there and you're, you know, you like what I'm saying or would like to respond, why don't we meet up? We'll have a cup of tea. I'd love to have a bit of fellowship with you. I'll be at such and such a place in two weeks' time on a Saturday morning and we'll meet up and have, have a bit of fellowship. You know what happened? 120,000 people turned up. <laughs> Poor Babaka. Well, it only just shows this is apostolic work that is going on around the world. Yes, and we're part of it. I suppose, well, I dare to hope in the very tradition of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, as we bow in obedience to the necessity of the Christian message in our tired and so tottering world. Finally, as I close off, think with me about the nerve of our message. The nerve of the task before us. Paul, it seems, never gave up. Basketed over the wall at Damascus, rejected at Antioch, threatened in Iconium, stoned at Lystra, frustrated in Bithynia, flogged in Philippi, hounded in Thessalonica, and now ridiculed in Athens. Been there, done that, that's Paul. And later, faced at Ephesus by the Temple of Diana, four times the size of the Parthenon. His nerve holds. Diana, Mithras, Serapis, Apollo, Jupiter, sorry, they've all got to go. Jesus has taken all the space. Oh, there would be setbacks and shutdowns, but by the power of prayer and the Spirit among the saints of God, nothing can stop Jesus, providing 
our nerve holds. The danger is that our nerve might not hold. So, as we think about all of that and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to follow in this great tradition, well, let's wake up every day to his mission in our world. How do you wake up every day? You mums and dads, you can't wake up easily to having a long time with the Bible and prayer, perhaps at the crack of dawn. You've got these little mouths to feed. You've got these little bundles to stuff into their jackets, ready to go off to school. But sometime you may find an opportunity. You must find an opportunity. I'm retired. I can wake up and I, as I get up in my bed, think another, another day of adventure on planet Earth with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then my day of adventure begins rather pathetically with just a cup of tea. And I totter down to have tea. Then I, but downstairs I'm thinking, while I'm getting the tea ready, I'm thinking in 10 minutes' time, I am going to be having a meeting by arrangement with Jesus Christ. And a meeting by arrangement is much better than just saying, you know, shall I have a time of uh, reading the Bible and prayer? Where's, uh, you know, where's Lamentations? No, it's better if you've got an actual an arrangement. It was actually uh, that Danish philosopher, Kierkegaard, who once said, a believer is surely a lover. Yea, of all lovers, the most in love. So if we're in love with Jesus, we say, well, may I make an appointment with you? Such at a time. And that makes it much, much stronger. Friends, we've touched on the novelty of the gospel and on its networking, on its necessity, and also on its nerve. If we can only follow in the apostolic way, then a fellowship in any part of the world is likely to be part of the enduring story of the church that today is the biggest family of belief that the world has ever seen, so that we may ourselves humbly claim our church can touch the world. Let's have a brief prayer. Bless, O Lord, this dear gospel fellowship here. Bless the elders. Bless the leadership. Bless these sweet families and these children that come to this place. Bless the individuals. Bless those who are workers. Strengthen those who are not in work. Bless those who are retired. Bless those who are newcomers. Bless those who are seeking Lord, let this place always be a beacon of love and faith and outreach. And Lord, we know that you are already holding on to your minister here, your under-shepherd, the Reverend David Robertson. We entrust him to you and Annabelle, his wife, and their family, asking that the best may be given over these important days. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of being together in this house of prayer. In your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk
www.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.